content warning. This episode contains discussion of a scene which depicts forced sexual advances on a character. If this topic is triggering to you in any way, there are timestamps in the episode description to help you skip over this segment. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman, the only comics podcast hosted by a guy who was awoken in the middle of the night so his brother could show him the turd in the wind scene from Venom. I am Jackson Heyman, and we are not talking about Venom today. We actually, we kind of are talking about Venom, but we'll get to that. (laughs) You know, in these first couple of episodes, I've been wanting to do episodes on some big firsts. Our first episode was of focusing on Superman, the first superhero at all, and we covered Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman. But today, we are jumping over to the other side. We are talking about a Marvel comic, specifically Marvel's first event comic. Yes, we are talking about Secret Wars, full title, Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars, written by Jim Shooter, with pencils and colors by Mike Zeck, Bob Layton, John Beatty, and Christy Scheel, and lettering by Joe Rosen. This book ran from May 1984 to April 1985, and was one of the first big event miniseries in all of comics. And today, I am joined by a very special guest, one of the first people I ever started talking comics with, Mr. Eddie Passell. How are you doing? (laughs) I am, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, man? (laughs) I am doing great. It is 1045 in the morning. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, it's crazy. I I remember, I remember um, in middle school, the first time we met and I was, I was like astounded, like, oh my God, there are other people. There are other people who enjoy <laughs> comic books. Oh, for sure. Because, like, we were in middle school in, like, 2012, 2013. Right. And, like, that is sort of when I declare nerd culture to be on the rise into the mainstream. Right, because you had, like, that first Avengers film come out. You had The Amazing Spider-Man, The Dark Knight Rises. That was a really big year. It was a huge year for, like, mainstream nerd culture, and it's only gotten bigger since. But, like, like talking with you about comics was, like, one of the first real conversations I would ha- was able to have with people. And, like, oh, I'm not the only one who knows about this shit. Right. <laughs> no, I totally get that. I, 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 always, um, I always felt like the black sheep in my friend group. Where, like, no one made fun of me because I liked comic books. But everyone was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. 
uh, whatever you're talking about, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, because... I, I wish I could understand. No, because, like, like, I think we sort of have similar upbringing, similar friend groups from when we were in that that age. Like, right. we hung out with a lot of, like, the, the gamers. That, yeah. Yeah, we were... <laughs> they, they, had their, they had their things that they knew encyclopedic amounts about, and right. so did we, and no one really made fun of each other about it but it was like you have your things i have mine mm -hmm. but we still hang out yeah it was just like a lack of understanding absolutely so um before we get into this um why don't you tell the audience about your uh history with comics like i know we've been talking about it a little bit but like how did you get into comics oh yeah so oh man it's um Basically, when I was, oh, I think I was about six or seven, um, you know, uh, my family and I, obviously pre-COVID, oh. <laughs> so long ago, oh, uh, would take, oh, man, I, I try my best, I try my best to remember, <laughs> keeps me <laughs> hanging on, <laughs> but when I was like six or seven, um, my family would take, like, about some yearly um, trips to our uh, extended family, uh, either on the West or East Coast. Uh, and our family on the East Coast uh, lived in Washington, Seattle. Um, and my uncle, who is big, big um, uh, video game developer, uh, he's the head of art at um, Bungie Studios, he oh, did the no first, way. yeah, he did the first, like, I think he did Halo 2 through Reach, uh, and then they had the big business separation between 343 and, and Bungie, and he went on to do uh, Destiny 1 and 2, um, but he is, um, like, the biggest Spider-Man fan, yeah. and I was an impressionable kid at the time and you know you have people you look up to <laughs> and i definitely looked up to him because at the time i i knew i wanted to do something creative with my life um so he was a big big inspiration to me um and we went to their place for a vacation one time like the family all met there and we did like barbecues and stuff like that but he had i want to say like 700 comic books in various boxes and majority being spider-man yeah. <laughs> and i i don't know we uh, you know we watched spider-man sam raimi's spider-man 2 um one night and i like fell in love and he was like you know if you like spider-man i've got some really cool like comic books you can look through them if you want and from then on i fell in love with the comic book medium i mean obviously i fell in love with movies that same way that same experience but it, it was going through his his boxes and he i mean he's been collecting for a long time he's been collecting since he was like our age and he's you know he's yeah. still collecting so he's got all of like Civil War, he had, like, Torment, the, the Lizard Spidey run, like, 
I I was like astounded. So I like I just I fell in love with comic books yeah, <laughs> and I mean, Spider Man more specifically Spider Man. I but. know in the years that I have known you, you have been one of the biggest Spider Man fans that I've ever met, and you know it's really something about like what characters you immediately latch on to when you're getting into this stuff because like yeah because i i my gateway was the x-men like that and Mm -hmm. i will always cherish the x-men more so than any other marvel character specifically and most of like the dc canon like because of just i immediately saw these characters that were these allegories for marginalized communities and Mm -hmm being a disabled kid on the autism spectrum like that hit so hard being like there are these people with these extraordinary abilities that i can look up to and relate to exactly yeah it's all about first impressions and it's all about how you relate to these these characters and i think it's something just absolutely astounding that the early creators whether it be Stan Lee, um, or I'm trying to think of, <laughs> I'm trying to think of DC creators, but all I can think about is like Bill Finger. Uh, <laughs> well, Bill Finger, yes, we in this house we love and respect Bill Finger. Yeah, I, I make a point to always name Bill Finger first if I'm ever yes. talking about Batman. Yes. Um, but something is just, and I mean the wave was really initially started by by stan but obviously you know everyone eventually caught on where just that that moment in time and i think it would probably be that first fantastic four book uh when they just started focusing on the the men and women underneath the costume uh they they truly created something something special and they cemented these characters and the comic book medium in a place where for years and years and years people will now have a greater emotional attachment to these stories just for the fact that you now have real people under under these costumes and yeah it, it, it's just it's an amazing amazing thing I, I think about it a lot you know I, I, I'm I'm a creator. I, I create my own stories and stuff and I think about a lot how it's absolutely just I, I say I you know, I like to say bonkers. <laughs> I think it's bonkers that we are able to connect and find comfort in characters that exist on a page. Oh, I, I think it's I think it's amazing um, and I, you know it's it's just astounding to me like how I was able to read uh, I think my first my first Spider-Man book was one of the J. Michael Straczynski I think it was the first introduction it was in my middle school library yeah um, J. J. Michael Straczynski I always mess up his name they had two of his books and then oh, they had my... a big Copendium, I think you call it, like the uh, big com- collection. Compendium, omnibus, I think. Yeah. yeah, they had one of those for Ultimate Spider-Man as well. But the first one I had read was the introduction of Morlan, and uh, 
throughout that entire book, Spider-Man's literally just getting his the crack kicked out of him, and but he keeps getting up, and that's what really, really latched me on. Mm-hmm. It's like at a time where like I was struggling with a lot of stuff at home, you know. I was struggling with my parents' divorce. I was I lost my dog and like all this horrible stuff. I felt like I couldn't keep going, but then I read Spider-Man literally almost die and continue to keep getting back up. And like I just find it amazing that a couple of drawings and dialogue bubbles helped me get through such a rough time, you know? It's 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 honestly a beautiful thing. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. It's insane how related, because there's, this has been a common statement in the comic community for years with DC being the characters you aspire to be and the Marvel Mm -hmm. characters being the ones you relate to. And I think that really says a lot about um, Lee, Kirby, Ditko, everyone in the original Marvel staff, like finding these just really human moments for readers right. to latch on to. But Yeah, it's it's crazy. But this story was not created to tell the story of stories of relatable characters and human moments. Marvel Superhero Secret Wars was created to sell toys. Right. And no, and you can tell. If you, <laughs> you can go certainly back tell to the nineteen eighties we have the two big toy companies, Mattel and Kenner. And Kenner had licensed the DC superheroes as a massive wave of toys. They had the Super Friends show promoting all of it. And Mattel was like, hey, we want some of that money. We want, we want some of that sweet, sweet Marvel money. And they approach Jim Shooter, then editor-in-chief of Marvel, being like, hey... We want to license your characters and put this huge line of toys out. And we want you to write a comic miniseries to promote it. And they and Mattel had all these special requirements. It had to have like fortresses, vehicles, weapons, all these new things for them to yeah. sell in addition to the action figures. Um, they had Marvel had to redo Doctor Doom's entire design because it looked too medieval. And they brought the title Secret Wars to Shooter because they had focus groups that showed that kids reacted positively to the words wars and secret. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so it, I, I think it's really... It's just a, such a... It's a bonkers way to yeah. write a story. with. It's... it's it felt... From from the moment, and, and we can get into this, you know, once once you start talking about the the content within the issues. But the the moment I I, I loaded up that first issue, I was like, this is the most corporate thing I've ever read. Yeah, it is. Well, and you know that doesn't that that does not that does not is I we are, I don't think we're saying this in any way to say that this is a bad, bad story. Right. I think there are parts in this that are really good. I think there's stuff oh, that... Oh, I mean, there's an icon... There's iconic moments there's in there There's iconic for me. imagery in nearly every section of this story. And... But... You can totally tell that this was created by committee 
and handed to a decent, a talented writer and a talented team of artists to just be like, hey, make something with these ideas. And Tudor had worked his way like through the ranks of Marvel for years and years, and he'd been working in the in the company for decades. And it, you can tell that he knows these characters, knows how they all work, and knows what good stories to tell. Right. And yeah, that's something that I really, really loved is that while, you know, while plot beats weren't always my favorite or certain things that happened were a bit creepy, you know, like... Yeah, we'll, I, we'll, we'll get to that part. But one thing that I can completely commend them for is nailing the characterization of every single character. Every character felt in character. Yes. Like, they were written like I have always imagined. I, I mean, like, a couple specifics I can 100% point out. Um, Spider-Man, for one, being mm -hmm. the, the kid from, from Queens who's just kind of like the oddball. Um, I love that, and I loved uh, specifically Doom. Doom oh was... We we Doom was a standout, Doom. is what I'll say for right now, um, and just everyone felt, everyone felt in character, and everyone felt different. They were all at different parts on the, uh, on on the story scale. Uh, yeah. They they all felt unique, and 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 true. Like Cap, Cap his like first. Cap's like first one of his first lines when they get on Battle World is like, "I want Avengers." Uh, like I'm I'm point twelve. I want Avengers on two, four, six, and eight. Uh, and I was like, "This is awesome. This, this is Cap." That is Steve Rogers being the leader. It, yeah, it's great. But you mentioned Battle World. Now, what is Battle World? Battle World is this massive planet made up of different chunks of other planets created by a giant cosmic being known as the Beyonder. And he brings this group of heroes and this group of villains together. Um, hold on. I have a list of all oh, the characters involved. And perfect, I'm just perfect. Because it's a lot. These it is right a lot. Now. This felt like Endgame. Yeah, this is Endgame levels of heroes and villains, which is which was insane. Um... I want to... Let me see if I can do this in one breath. Careful. <laughs> Captain America, Monica Rambeau, Hawkeye, Iron Man, but he's James Rhodes at this point, She-Hulk, yep. Thor, Wasp, the Hulk, Fantastic Four, Sans, Sue Storm, Spider-Man, Colossus, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Rogue, Storm, Professor X, Magneto, and on the villain side... The Absorbing Man, Doctor Doom, Kang, Lizard, Galactus, The Wrecking Crew, Ultron, Molecule Man, and the Enchantress. It's a lot. It's it, it's definitely a lot. When when they went into battle, I was like, like I just said, like it felt Endgame. Like there were so many characters at play, and there was so much to. And you know, a lot of people will complain about Endgame, where it's like, oh, there's too much to look at. I don't know where we're going. But with a comic book. Stuff like this is perfect because there's yes. so much to look at. There's so much to to absorb and and take in. And one of my first notes about the villain team is that they have so many heavy hitters. Like, oh my god! I, I in felt, my notes I forgot he, I forgot to add Doctor Doctor Octopus. Oh right! Do, I mean, like I remember 
when we introduce the villains and the heroes are like well, what's that across the way and we go to the villain the villain little base and i just remember seeing ultron doom kang and i was like how are they going to win heavy and hitters like really heavy hitters and ultron was awesome at first oh and then he God. got his butt whooped by galactus <laughs> Also, if, if I can just point something out, because I, I have this in my notes. Um, on the villain side, there's a there's a common, like, there's a common theme of all these characters. Well, a lot of them. They they all have a green color scheme. Right. So I've been, I've, in my notes, I have them called the green team. That's... Green uh, team. <laughs> it's like, it's that's, an That's the Marvel way. Green is bad. Yeah. Star Wars taught me that. Green is yep. bad. <laughs> but so all these characters arrive on battle world and are told by the beyonder kill your enemies that's it that's slay them and i will give you your heart's desire right knowing the marvel heroes it cannot be that easy <laughs> exactly exactly it, it can't be easy so what follows is 12 issues of Battles being raged, alliances being formed and broken until the final confrontation between Doctor Doom and the Beyonder, who yep. and Doom Doom, as we've said, is a standout. He kills the Beyonder, takes his power, and for a while it seems like he's gonna be like a benevolent god. Like a very Yeah. I, I literally put in my notes Doom is just a god. <laughs> yeah, he's a god, and he wants to like help everyone, but then yeah. he like has an existential crisis and go reverts to his villainous ways. And yeah. heroes win. Um, they go back to Earth, in, except for one. But we'll we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, until the end, uh, like until he he goes back to his villainous ways. I I really truly consider Doom as the protagonist of this story. He. Well, and that's, I think, something interesting about storytelling. You don't have to be evil to be right. the protagonist. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, you don't have to be good to be the protagonist. Exactly. And because, like, a lot of movies and stuff are about very villainous protagonists, and mm -hmm. Doom really is the protagonist of this series. Yeah, he does the most to push the plot forward. Yeah. Like, a lot of, I mean, like, if, if without Doom, there would just, I feel like, be a lot of, like, the heroes chilling at the other place, like, being like, let's not use all our energy, and the villains being like, ah! It would be a lot of that one scene where Thor and the Enchantress just fuck off from the rest of everyone, and just like, yeah. hey, we're Asgardian, let's hang out over here. Right, don't tell anyone. We're yeah. just going to chill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um definitely I definitely love Doom. Doom I feel like was always doing something. Doom was always on a mission and and really really drove the plot for me. I was yeah. so excited whenever Doom came back on Doom, the page. Well, this is why I'm so excited for the MCU to finally introduce Doctor Doom. I think he is a very, for lack of a better word, a very Shakespearean villain. Mm -hmm. He is a character defined by tragedy, full of ambition, and 
in almost every case, that ambition and hubris gets the better of him. Right. He could be a hero. He, he genuinely could. He but has just, the resources to yeah. be a hero, but doesn't. He's a villain of his own story. And yes. that's what I love about him. He's always he's always letting the 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 darker parts of himself take over. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think my favorite scene in this entire book is comes in like the last couple of issues when Doom has the godlike powers and all the heroes are just like we are going to charge in one final strike. And Doom just kills them. Yeah. And he feels nothing. And then he continuously reforms and destroys Captain America time and time and time again. And it's a very tragic scene. Like, Yeah. He's a very tragic figure. And... Definitely. Well, yeah, there's... I've seen a lot of discourse recently being like, Doctor Doom could be a benevolent ruler of the entire world. But his own just ego gets in the way. Yeah, and and that's, you know, that's why, because there's been rumblings for so long that the next Endgame is Secret yeah. Wars. And that's why I was so excited thinking about that while reading this book. Because I was like, if they really, you know, really take inspiration from the comic and they make a Doom the centerfold of this plot... Man, I I would love to see that scene in live action. I oh think it would be God. hard break. And I think I think it was also interesting just his level of power and really the power of everyone involved in this because characters like Ultron and Kang, Kang especially being he seems like he's going to be the next big big bad of the MCU. Right. Kang gets vaporized early on mm. in this book. And never and doesn't come back until the very end. And that goes to show just how yeah, much man, power I, is at stake here. Yeah, I, I made a note to mention that like there in that first issue there is a lot of power scaling. Oh my you god. Know, you start with with Ultron just whooping everybody on the villain side, and then Ultron tries to go to Galactus and Galactus swats him like a fly, and then and then Doom and Galactus both go to try to meet the Beyonder, and the Beyonder swats Galactus like a fly. And I was like, that's a great way to show me that the Beyonder is is really not to be messed with. Like, he is a true threat. He messed up Galactus. And I I, I think it was very successful power scaling. Oh, absolutely. It was obvious, but successful. Yes, yes. And I think... I think it's really interesting. Like Beyonder is not the antagonist of this book. The Beyonder right. is a omniscient being that just watches and yeah, just, he's just makes bored, this man. happen. <laughs> he's bored and he wants to see some people fight. I mean, honestly, I relate to the Beyonder. <laughs> exactly. That is another thing about this book. It feels like a kid playing with action figures just. Mm -hmm bashing them into each other yeah yeah no and all the different fights it's definitely prevalent like I, I remember there's a there's a cool fight between that i never thought i'd see there was a cool fight between spider-man and the x-men and oh i was like God, oh yeah. 
what? We're doing this? This is awesome. Which... And then Wasp and Magneto have a fight. And, mm -hmm. and like, there's so many, like, great pairings. It felt like Infinity War again. Where it's like, oh, we're seeing a lot of pairings that we wouldn't have never expected to see. And I want to talk about the X-Men for a second. Because the X-Men, I think, have a really interesting arc throughout this book. Yeah, yeah, because... very, very, um... I, I was very conflicted about how I felt about what the X-Men were doing a lot of times. It's a lot of times I was like, oh no, I get what they're doing. And then I was like, wait, why are we doing this? Yeah, because like, usually they would like ally themselves with the heroes, but right. Magneto is there. And mm -hmm. everyone else on the hero side distrusts Magneto, but right. Charles is like, Charles and the rest of the X-Men are like, He's a mutant. We got to give him a chance. We should. We have more in common with him than everyone else here. So they leave and fuck off and go hang out with Magneto in his big magnet-shaped fortress for mm -hmm. most of the book while they're just figuring out what to do next. Yeah, and something... There was an interaction... I mean, there's a lot of infighting in this book. Yes. That's for sure. But there was a specific interaction very early on that I really, really enjoyed, where there was a clear disconnect between the humans and the mutants. Mm -hmm. And Cyclops, I think, said, look, guys, we know that Magneto's done some really terrible things, but he's not a killer, and he wants to do good. He's, you know, that's his, his pure intention is to do good. And then Hawkeye comes up to him and he's like, oh, so you and you mutants are sticking together. You can all, you know, get out of here if oh. you want. Like, I was like, wow, this is, this is some dramatic, <laughs> dramatic writing it, it for, there for, is a, lot for a crossover. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's an interesting thing you bring up about Cyclops being that. You, Magneto is trying to do good. You certainly wouldn't do something like compare him to Hitler. Right. <laughs> right. Oh my god, there, it is, it is a moment where just, the, the Wasp is like, you are one of the worst people since Hitler. And Janet, honey, you're saying this to a Holocaust survivor. I was gonna say, I was like, ooh, this is a bit, I mean, I know it's the 80s, but this is a bit insensitive. It's, yeah, like, you can't argue different time here. You don't, it's, no. Right. Um, speaking this of some. wrong. It's yes, just not cool. Speaking of some other different times, just other things that I, you know, let's get all the gripes out of the way for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Wasp... Let's 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 get the negatives so we can gush yes. about the positive. Yes. Um. I think a lot of characters in this book sort of just are there and mm -hmm. never do anything of note. Like, Definitely. I think the Wrecking Crew, which what a stupid group of villains, but I love them I, so much. I made sure to note that in I think it was in issue eleven or twelve. I made sure to note. I totally forgot Lizard was there. Yeah. I didn't even notice Lizard. Lizard? Like, Lizard Lizard showed up in issue one, and I was like, oh, cool, I love the Lizard. I want to see him duke it out with Spider-Man or, or Cap or something. And then he showed up in issue 11, and I was, I was like, are you kidding me? I totally didn't even notice. Like, it's like he wasn't even there. He has, like, a tiny little subplot halfway through the book where he, like, falls in love with the Wasp. But, right. but then that never gets resolved. And, and it's so shows... forgettable. Like, yeah. I was just like... 
why are we like i think i think the biggest problem with this book besides the writing of the 80s and the some of the insensitive nature i think the biggest problem with this book is that they they just did they tried to do too much like way too much with too little you know they had 12 issues which i mean a lot of people would think is like okay that's that's a good number but they have I mean, I don't, I don't have the exact number, but they have so many heroes. Yeah. They have so many heroes. It's like trying to tell Infinity War and Endgame together in a 12-issue series. Uh, like, yeah. it's too much. So many characters get thrown to the side. So many characters feel honestly pointless. The Hawkeye um, doesn't have anything to do here. Hawkeye does one thing. He, he, shoots, he shoots an explosive arrow onto the falling scrap metal. Yeah. And that's it. But and then Rhodey, Rhodey blasts it anyways. Yeah. Like, it's weird going back to this <clears throat> and thinking about, like, how Iron Man, both Tony Stark and Rhodey, like, they are huge characters now. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I didn't, I didn't even realize that it was Rhodey under the suit until, like, halfway through the book. I had suspicions in the first issue yeah. because... They're, I mean, oh man, <laughs> Mr. Fantastic goes on one of his just ridiculously long science oh, talks. Oh, and then Bruce Banner, the Hulk, who I was like, oh, oh, it's Bruce. Um, he was like, yeah, that's obvious. And then Iron Man said, obvious? What did he even say? And I was like, that's odd. I feel like tony's pretty smart yeah. he would have a better comeback than that so i looked it up and i was like oh, so this is roadie because he okay. never takes the helmet off like you would have never, never known does take the helmet off right like you would never know well pff, never takes the helmet off because i didn't want a black man on the cover of a book in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> but i there was a okay for all of the exposition dumping that they do, there was a lot of stuff that got swept under the rug that yeah. got a little bit confusing. And I I was like, in the first issue, I was like, they better be explaining everything because there's so much exposition dumping here. Uh-huh. Like, every character is like, man, well, what are we doing here? We were just doing this one thing, and now we're here. And it's, and it's like, hi, Let's do a whole panel of everybody introducing themselves, and the characters will be tiny, tiny, tiny drawings on the bottom, and the rest of the the panel will be taken up by purely text. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Felt like I was reading a novel. And I think it was weird that, like, these characters have existed in the same world for the longest time. Why do they have to do a panel where they introduce themselves? Why do they have to do an icebreaker? Yeah, well, a lot of me, and I guess this was just before that time, but a lot of me was just like, why don't they just have caption boxes next to every hero? In that first, that first splash page, just put caption boxes next to the heroes. Like, who are they? What, what team are they affiliated to? And I think for a lot of them, like, especially like in that era, these characters were icons. So like, I, you don't need to just say who you are. You we know exactly, and and the the sad thing is with all of the exposition dumping, and I I can't they they do exposition dumping so that everyone knows who everybody is. 
you know, the readers will know who everybody is. But the double-edged sword of that is I can't imagine a new reader coming in who's never read even just the X-Men. Yeah. And being able to, to say, like, oh, okay, I get it. I, got, I know what's going on. Like, there's just too much information thrown in that first, like, 20 pages. Yeah. And it is, there it's, is... it's really jarring, and if I didn't have pre-contextualized knowledge of the characters beforehand, I would have been so lost. Mm-hmm. And they have, they have the balls to introduce new characters throughout <laughs> this book. We get a, there is a specific plot point that the Beyonder takes a suburb of Denver yep. and puts it into Battle World. So we get a new Spider-Woman. We yep. get two new villains, Titania and Volcana. And right. just all, keep, things keep happening. And there are plot points that never really get resolved. There is a love triangle between Johnny Storm, Colossus, and this alien healer lady. Yeah, but Colossus also is like, oh, my Katie. <laughs> it's like, okay. uh... As someone who... I Okay, I am a huge fan of Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride is my favorite mutant. I She's am great. all right with her relationship with Colossus. Mm-hmm. But I don't like him spending the first half of this book whining that he misses her. That's, then, it's like that's his only dialogue. Like That's it, his one character trait. It is his one character like, trait. And then he just sees this alien woman, and he's like, oh, I am in love with you now. I'm going to cheat on my girlfriend. <laughs> I'm going to cheat on my girlfriend, even though this lady's involved with the Human Torch. Right, and you can say the same almost about Mr. Fantastic, but Mr. Fantastic does do stuff. Like, he, he does stuff outside of, of being like, my, she was pregnant, and I'm sad about it. And even the characters make a point to mention, like, yeah. dude, stop whining. We're all here, and we don't want to be here. Please. <laughs> I, think, I think Hulk, I think Hulk is like, 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 oh, oh yeah, Cap. There's a specific moment where, where, where he's talking, uh, Mr. Fantastic is talking to Cap, and Cap is like, as much as we need you here, I, I wish I wish you could be back with your Sue. And then Hulk comes in and he's like, yeah, so do I, so we don't have to hear his incense in constant whining. <laughs> oh my like, god. It's, I think a lot of these, a lot of the background characters in this book are reduced to a single character trait. And more often yeah. than not, that, that that trait is whining. Because Wasp whines a lot, too. Um, <sighs> Colossus whines. Reed whines. Um, Who else? Um, there's, a, there's a good good amount. Um, I would say, also, I feel like... I feel like Spider-Man has some moments as well. Yeah. Where, like, for me, Spider-Man, because he's, they, they really portray him as an empath here. Yes. It's like, he notices other people's whining, mm -hmm. and that, like, triggers him to start whining yes. on his own. Like, he, <laughs> he, 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 there's this bizarre one where he's in the rafters, and he's just watching Mr. Fantastic, and he goes, man, now that's a guy who looks depressed. 
I get it, though, because we're so far away from home, and I miss Queens. And I was like, thanks, Spider-Man. I knew this already. (laughs) Thanks, thanks, Pete. Um, What are you going to do in this book? Right, besides get the black suit, and that's it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, uh, the other, there's a, there's a weird relationship between the Wasp and Magneto Ugh. that it's, it's, I, I, I don't like it, but I can't really describe what I don't like about it. It's just creepy. It is right. not well, fun it, to... they, it's, it's, it's a point made in the art that Magneto is obviously much older than yes. Janet. Yes. Um, and it was very uncomfortable the way he was sitting when talking to her. And then I, they, 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 he forces a kiss on her. Yeah. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, oh, oh. And then eventually she's like, oh, I mean, I guess so. No one's, no one's here. I guess I'll indulge. But like, he totally forces a kiss. Yeah, on he her. forces a kiss. And then when Janet escapes, uh, then the lizard becomes a creepy stalker of her and it it's stuff that like wouldn't fly today that i guess was okay in the 80s i guess i mean janet's janet's just an object here which is really sad because janet janet is my favorite of the wasps i i think janet in the 80s especially like throughout because we don't even have time. We don't have time to talk about Hank Pym and Jan's relationship right oh, now. Yeah. No, we do. We do not. There is a lot of not okay shit going on in this book that was meant to sell cho- toys for children. Yeah, like why are we portraying someone the X Men vouch vouches for as a kind of creepy and just like yeah just kind of almost almost pedophilic dude well, like not, i don't think pedophile is the right word but like i i no, i yeah. i'm not i just mean pedophilic oh, like yeah, those sure. tendencies of like sure. i'm gonna force a for kiss sure. on this for sure younger woman um, and it just it i just don't think they realized at that time that like kids were reading this yeah and well they knew kids were reading this but i don't think they thought that kids would take take anything away from yeah. it like I, I can't imagine this being put out now and someone not making a big article about how we're teaching young males to yeah. to be creepy, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, I mean, shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's one other big um criticism I have with this book before we get into right. the good stuff. Um, I think there isn't really a stagnant threat throughout the book until. Doom takes the Beyonder's power and yeah. becomes God Emperor Doom. If if to pair to take a title from the Secret Wars reboot by Jonathan right. Hickman. Yeah, um, you know, I remember reading that and thinking, I wish this happened earlier. Yeah. I was like, if we had hit the the midpoint or that first quarter point and doom had done this and throughout the rest of the book it was doom and his ego and hubris yeah creating new scenarios for the heroes and constantly torturing them throughout like oh now i'm gonna i'm gonna erect new york up from under you and you're gonna fall through new york or i was just i thought of so many cool yeah 
plot or story beats and that, that, that they could have done if they had just done that earlier, you know? Because I was like, I was sitting there and I was like, so what's our goal here? I mean, we want to get off the planet, but how are we going to do that? Are we going to go fight the Beyonder? Is he what we're, what we're trying to go for? We're just going to fight the villains the whole time and hope that something figures itself out, you know? And, and a lot of heroes make a point to note that Cap does a lot of leading in the first bit. And then he kind of just wants everyone to sit around for good strategic sake, yeah. but for story's sake, it does not do much. It's like, it is a lot of back and forth between one group attacking another, another group coming back, another group betraying another. It is, yeah. and the entire time Galactus is just T-posing there trying to eat the planet. <coughs> You'd think he'd be a much bigger bigger threat, but he's just T-posing. Yeah, I would have hoped that Galactus would be the first major physical threat throughout the entirety of the book until Doom got the powers. But, no, like, I I specifically remember, I don't, I think it was maybe the end of issue four, but, like, they the heroes just fought with Magneto. Um, Magneto had just come back and he put Spider-Man into that metal ball and Spidey's like, guys, it's Magneto. And they're like, yeah, we know. <laughs> um, and then, uh, Johnny was like, are we going to chase after him? And Cap's like, no, we got a bigger problem on our hands. And there's Galactus standing there just like looking at them like a child, like just like standing. It's like, we have a big problem coming our way. And the next issue, they don't do any <laughs> they don't do anything about Galactus. It's no. just like, oh, we needed a cliffhanger, but we're not gonna we're not gonna resolve it. I mean Galactus, Galactus is just gonna keep doing his thing. Galactus stands there. Galactus sends, st- spends more time in this series immobile than anything else. Right. And they make it such a point in the first issue to describe him as this big, powerful being. And who can like really kick ass he, and he is the planet eater and he just t poses truly truly it's um i don't know i felt like it was a waste of galactus yeah yeah i, I feel like they just used galactus as like hey we need some sort of physical threat to be there to keep people scared um while the heroes fight each other you know and I feel like that's just a waste of Galactus. Like, if if the heroes and villains needed to team up to fight Galactus, that would be, for a big midpoint battle, I would love that. Because Galactus is a tough, tough foe. And because, like, even, even Reed was like, oh, I fought Galactus before, I can get through to him, and then he can't. And at that point, I was like, okay, they're going to have to fight him. And they don't. <laughs> they don't do anything about him. Here's the thing. You'd think that you'd you'd think that with a book designed to sell toys and promote toys, you'd think that Mattel would release a big giant Galactus action figure and that's why he's in the book, right? Right. No. No. There's no Galactus toy released by Mar- by Mattel as part of this Wars <sighs> line. So no. what is he doing here? What is Galactus doing here? Oh my god. <laughs> I love Galactus. Galactus, the planet eater, you are my favorite. Why are you here? 
Galactus, I I hope you're the next Avengers villain in the MCU. Please make it happen. Yeah, don't make um, him a cloud this time. Yeah, make him cool. <laughs> okay, but I I can't I I just I can't describe the like I I wasn't disappointed with the book. I just like and this is my genuine genuine thoughts. I think there's a lot of really great moments, some amazing beats. Mm-hmm. Some iconic imagery, but the entire time I was sitting there and I just could not help but think, man, I just, I think the Spider-Man animated series did it so much better. Yeah. I think... You know, because I feel like with that, they weren't held down to like, let's sell more toys. Yeah. I mean, like, th- that show was created to sell toys, but with that, I feel like they were actually interested in telling a riveting and genuine story whereas with here there's a lot of cool fights and a lot of cool action beats but in terms of storytelling it ultimately fails i think i think it's like i i think comparing this to like a a a fun action popcorn movie that you would go just to Mm -hmm. have a good time transformers yeah this is this is the Transformers of event comics. Yes, this is it, it. Truly is. This is and the there's trans- a lot of Transformers of feeling event, event comics. comics. Yes. yes, but I feel like this is the most because I feel like, you know, back in the day they just it was so sales oriented because mm-hmm. the toy business was booming, booming more than it ever would. Like the toy business is still still pretty prevalent now, but. Back then, I think that was the best it had ever done in history. Yeah. Uh, like continuing now to today, I don't think we've ever reached that point of toy sales. Mm-hmm. Like toys were just knocking it out of the park, and I think that they were just more more interested in. You know, when I said earlier that the creative team really wanted to tell a story, but. There's only so much story you can tell when you're held down by the restrictions of a toy company. Yeah, this is a... Um, and it's just, it, it's so... That's what I meant by corporate. Like, it's so, yeah. it's so sales-oriented. So, so sales-oriented. And it's, it's really the, the biggest downfall of the book. Is it, it just holds... It holds the potential the book could have back. Yeah. I think... Like many things, the flaw of this book is capitalism. And, yep. And I think trying to cram so much in and trying to sell all this stuff is the reason this book doesn't work as well as later event comics would. And yeah. I think for a first event comic ever, for a first series that crams all these characters in and has a massive threat they have to face, I think it is a good starting point. I think there are plenty of other events, um, specifically with Marvel, I think the Secret Wars reboot from 2015 does this concept so much better. It sets the standard. It it, it sets that, here's what we want to do going forward. You know, like, it was the first, you know, I consider it like the beta. Yeah, you know the beta testing version of of what uh, a crossover would come to be, mm-hmm. and you know, I I think that 
Marvel and DC have made some, <clears throat> you know, questionable crossovers in the past. You know, I feel like, I mean, mo most specifically for me recently, Empire. I was so excited for Empire. I was like, oh my gosh, Fantastic Four and Avengers crossing over. That's the coolest thing ever. I've always wanted to see this. And it failed. You know, it didn't do very well. It's a lot of talking and standing around. But I feel like with every, every single, at least Marvel crossover, every single one takes something good from Secret Wars. Yeah. There are so many things I noticed in Secret Wars that become a, just an ongoing, like, mm -hmm. I, I, I guess, like, you, you could call it tradition for every, every um, yeah. crossover. It, it, it sets in stone so many things that would come to create some amazing stories in the Absolutely. future. Like, you need to fail once. And I wouldn't even call it like a failure, but you need to have some sort of like a letdown once in order to build off of that and create something greater. Like I would have never like, I mean, I mean, it, I think it was great. I think it was fun, but I would have never expected them to do like a crisis on infinite earths yeah. or a secret wars reboot on their first try. Oh, like that's a lot to ask. No, I think we've been, we've done a lot of negative about this. So let's move into some of the positives. And I'm what ready. <laughs> I think I think there are a couple moments here, some very like breathtaking imagery mm -hmm. that I, I, I have a through line for some of them that were all used in Endgame. Yeah. But in this comic they were done better, I think. Uh, you know, I, I I for for certain moments I, I would I would agree. I would definitely agree. I think, like, because this gives us the broken cap shield. This yeah. gives us Hulk and the rest of the heroes under a giant pile of rubber, rubble. And yeah, <laughs> I think that, that moment specifically done so much better here than in Endgame. Because I, I remember going to a screening of Endgame. I, I saw it on my birthday. And I was like, for, for most of it, I was like, this is great. This is awesome. This is the best birthday yeah. ever. And then it gets to that moment where it's Hulk and a couple of other people under some rubble. It's and... it's Rhodes and Rocket. Yes, yes. They're drowning in the yeah. in the um. I think it's like the uh, the armory. Okay. I think they're drowning in. Yeah, and I whisper to myself, beneath a hundred beneath a hundred fifty billion tons stands the Hulk, and he's not happy, and it's. So disappointing to have the payoff later in that same scene be Scott Lang coming out as Giant Man rather than Bruce Banner and the Hulk together bursting out of that rubble. Like, right. the, and that is a... like we'd already seen Giant Man before, yeah. you know? And I would have loved in that moment and a particular gripe I have with those movies is the treatment of the Hulk. Oh, um, absolutely. But Absolutely. I would have loved in that moment if, because I feel like, here, here's the thing, I feel like in those movies, and I feel like in the comics, it's a constant swinging pendulum back and forth of two extremes. It's either all Hulk or all Bruce. Yes. Always. Always. And whenever, because I feel like even in the early ones where whenever he gets angry, the Hulk comes out, I feel like that's swaying in the, in the direction, like in, in the pendulum of the Hulk. Yeah. You know, he has more control. He, he comes out whenever Bruce gets angry. Bruce can't really control that. Um, 
So I would have loved them to reach that equilibrium where Hulk and Bruce are talking together at the same time, almost like a Venom style Mm -hmm. of of communication. Because, man, and I'm so... (laughs) I'm so sad that this wasn't already in Infinity War, in that deleted scene. I think that deleted scene was honestly the way they should have gone from the start so that the entirety of Endgame could be them truly reaching the equilibrium yep. but it's all bruce it's swaying in the direction of bruce and now and now it's like hulk is gone hulk just, and bruce just hijacked hulk's body but in in this book they they start to kind of meld into one personality yeah. Yeah. like bruce catches himself sometimes thinking things that he would never think like cap Cap is like, oh my gosh, it's it's morning. Why didn't you wake me? Go, go, sound the alarm, sound the alarm. This is when they're going to attack. And Hulk like thinks to himself, like, don't talk to me like that. Yeah. But, I, but outwards, Bruce says, oh, sorry, I don't know what I was thinking. And I thought that was so good. Just like their personalities melding into one person. I think the Hulk is one of the best characters in this book. I think he's so fun. Because uh, I've been going on a big deep dive of Hulk media, media right now because mm. I think it is a the concept of the Hulk is a very interesting character. Yeah. And I've been doing a lot of Jekyll and Hyde research for some other stuff because nice. I love that concept and trope of a story. And I think Hulk in like the late 80s, early 90s, when he was like this hybrid of Bruce and the Hulk mm-hmm. is one of the best iterations of this character and i think exactly what you're saying like the personalities are melding and they are one unified being yeah and i think that's how hulk should be treated everywhere else yeah you know um I, i i i don't know i think it's tough when you sway too much in one direction with the hulk for a super elongated amount of time uh, because eventually you're going to get sick of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what happened for me with Endgame. I was like, I'm sick of of seeing Bruce Hulk. I want old Hulk back. But I guarantee you if it was old Hulk the whole time, I would have been like, I miss Bruce. Yeah. You know, because the whole appeal of the character is the, the conflict and the dual personality and them becoming one. And I don't know. I, I think this this mo- this book just did it so much better. And that moment was, I think, one of the in at at this time because Hulk has had some incredible feats of strength. But I think this was the greatest feat of strength that Hulk had ever pulled off. Holding and it was up, really, really amazing. Yeah, holding up a massive mountain, dropped on them by one of the other characters that I think was done really well in this book. The Molecule Man, which is a character that is severely underrated. He he is he has this oh, dude. unfathomable power, but he has mental blocks. And he has like anxiety issues He's, and like I would consider him a pacifist almost. He, yeah. Like he could destroy the universe if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Right. I I really, really loved it, it was a real breath of fresh air for me when when Doctor Doom came up to him and he was like 
uh, you're Molecule Man. You can you can erase this man from existence. What are you doing? And Molecule Man was like, I, that I don't. I'm not Molecule Man. I'm just. I forget his real name. Uh, his name um, is Owen Reese. And I'm just Owen Reese. Like yeah. I don't want to be here. I just want to go home. Yeah. He, I was like, that's amazing. That's a breath of fresh air because all the other villains are like, <laughs> I'm gonna kill everybody. He and he's just great, like, I don't want to do this. Like yeah. I don't want to be here. I want to be normal. He has and a I great really arc that. throughout the story. And yeah. it's a really interesting take for a villain. Um, Certainly. It was great. just, he was my favorite under Doom. He was yeah. my favorite villain in the book. I I think, um, uh, I'm trying to think of other characters that I thought were done really well. She-Hulk had a fantastic moment. Yeah. She yeah. gets the spotlight where, like, it, it's a moment where, like, everyone thinks the Wasp has died, and... She and Jennifer Walters is furious. She yeah. stampedes to the villain's base and just single-handedly takes out the Wrecking Crew, the Absorbing Man, all these other villains, and it is just a great... It, it's what I want in the She-Hulk series. Yeah, and I think She-Hulk, the, the new series, has a lot of potential yeah. to take from this book and the way that they characterize her. Yes. I feel like... Like I said about every character, you know, this book characterizes everybody perfectly, almost, almost, almost perfectly. And I feel like she is one of those cases where it's like, this is exactly what I want from this character. This is how yes. I want this character to act. She is a no nonsense, get what you want. I'm going to, I'm not going to wait around. I'm going to go and I'm going to take action. And that's what I love because so much of Bruce is like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going belly up. I'm going belly up. I'm going to. I'm going to relax. I'm going to kind of stay away from the conflict. But she, because of the unique way her powers work compared to the Hulk, she's like, uh-uh, I'm going. I'm going to go kick some ass. Like, and I really love that. Like, I is, need that from her in She-Hulk series. It's the difference in personalities. Bruce is a scientist. Jen is a lawyer. And right. she is a no-nonsense lawyer. And that is really shown off here. Certainly. Yeah, she was great. Another standout for, for me was where to go um i really enjoyed i really enjoyed cap in the first half mm -hmm. yes <laughs> like i had mentioned earlier when cap comes in and he takes charge like that moment is so good because yeah. i was like yes yes this is how cap should be this is what i want from cap and you get a little bit of that in the mcu but i feel like it was less of him being a strategist. Like, he is a master strategist. Yeah. And more of him just being like, I'm going to take charge because I was in the military, yeah. you know? But him here being like, I, I'm, I'm 12 o'clock. I want Avengers on 2, 4, 6, and 8. And then I want everyone else filling in the other spots. I want to form a circle, form a perimeter. Let's keep eyes everywhere. I was like, this is Cap. Like, this is the master strategist I know and love. But then, as everyone starts arguing over who the leader should be, he kind of backs off. And, you know, that's very Cap to do, where he's like, okay, let's give somebody else a chance. But then from then on, the master strategist in him kind of takes a backseat. And I that's, you know, uh, that's just one gripe I have. But that Cap, the way they, man, when Cap takes charge in this book, he takes charge. Yeah. And I really, really love that, because I'm a Cap fan. Yeah. I really love Cap. I did not like the way that... 
I, I, I did not like the way that certain interpretations of the character had treated him up until mm. the MCU. Yeah. Um, I loved him in Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Um, he's so good in Earth's Mightiest God. Heroes. Um, I love him in the MCU. I, I feel like even... I, I, I'm, I'm of the... What I feel like is the minority of people who... I loved Cap since First Avenger. First Avenger is one of my favorite MCU films. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly just because I love Cap and I love period pieces. Um, and I love I love period pieces because of Cap. <laughs> so I uh, I think we have to go on a tangent about First Avenger now. Um, oh I think, yeah. I think it has its it's one of the few MCU movies that has its own unique style. And certainly, I would think I would put that Ragnarok and the Guardians movies sort of in this category of like yeah. they are their own thing while still being connected to the rest That's... of it. That's what I want for every MCU film. That? Like, you know, everyone's got the same gripe of, like, all the MCU films feel the same. But, like, these these select few genuinely feel like something's really, truly special and feel like a, a genuine creative vision from the director. And, and I, I think in this last year, a lot, we've seen a bunch of unique takes on these on new characters and and also black widow but um that's my own personal opinion about black widow but right <laughs> i think wandavision i think uh mm-hmm. falcon and the winter soldier i think oh, Shang, i think shang chi falcon and the winter soldier all man. all of these all of these stories that they've been doing are really unique takes on these characters yeah and can only work specifically with these characters yeah it's it's kind of like marvel just now started to get comfortable with giving the the directors a bit more creative control and creative freedom um like they you know like these these other movies that we had mentioned like oh yeah they have some and i would even say the incredible hulk is part of that group okay the incredible hulk feels super different and I would say Iron Man does because mm-hmm. Iron Man, while like further down the line, the MCU has become very samey mm-hmm. um, and they copy the Iron Man style. But when Iron Man came out, it was very distinct yes. and very, very unique. Um, but I, I, I don't know. Um, I feel like just being a Cap fan and I had not felt this sort of way about the way Cap was portrayed and i had not felt this giddy about the way cap was portrayed since i can't really say first avenger because first avenger is more of a solo gig he's i mean he's taking charge but he it's it's about him it's it's very centralized to him the the last time i felt this um giddy about like strategist cap was in avengers the first avengers he like he does a lot of of strategy and 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 call uh, calling the shots mm-hmm. in that. Like, um, I remember feeling giddy in the scene where he says Hulk smash, but not because he says Hulk smash. He's like Iron Man. I want you surrounding all of these blocks. I want you to form a perimeter. No one gets in or out. Like, it's so good. It's, like, it's so good, and it got me so excited. It's Hulk smash is a command rather than like a catchphrase. And I think, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so good. And I feel like, I feel like outside of that, um, my other, my other standout would have to be, 
Um, I mean, I loved Spider-Man, but he wasn't much of a standout. He was yeah. kind of just the the whipping boy, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I I would say that my other I I, I have I have one other standout that I I really really loved, and it would have to be. It's it's hard. It would have to be certain moments of magneto yeah yeah i feel like magneto when he's not being creepy, creepy to janet yeah is really good Ma- outside oh. of outside of that 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 thing where you know anything with him and janet is like excluded from when yes. i say i think magneto was done really well in this book i think that in that first issue when the x-men are standing up for him and he has this big monologue about how like have I done some horrible things? Yes, I have, but I am not a murderer. I am not. I. I. I am. A, I. I'm just doing what I think is right for my people. People. My people that you humans have discriminated and been against yep. since the dawn of time. I'm just doing what I think is right for them. Um, I really liked that. I really, really enjoyed everything with him outside of outside of that the janet stuff like yeah. he really felt like a character who was not on the side of good or bad he was fighting for truly what he believed was the best for his people yeah. and whether that was bad or good at the time he was doing certain things it didn't matter it didn't mm-hmm. matter he goes between because he's just trying to do what's right um before i get into my last standout of this book i think we have to address the black suit. We have to talk yep. about. We have to talk about the symbiote. I think that's issue eight, right? Issue eight with that iconic cover of like Spider-Man just in the center, like being like, "Whoa, what's going on?" Yeah, yeah. It's um. It is the strangest origin for what would later become Venom. I think. What would later become one of the greatest Spider-Man villains, yeah. and arguably some of the greatest Spider-Man stories of all time. Yeah. And I mean, you know, later interpretations retcon usually because no one wants to do a full Secret Wars yeah. thing in just a Spider-Man show except for the 80s show, but yeah. they introduced the black suit before Secret Wars yeah. in the 80s but show. It's... But it's like this thing where I got really excited to see the black suit. And then I remembered that there's 50 other characters that yeah. they have to deal with. Yes. So Spider-Man gets one like like one moment where he's like, hey, hey, check out my new suit. I can do organic webbing. And that's about it. <laughs> and then, you know, he fucks off. But like, I mean, to be honest, uh, I had wished that they had made it a bigger deal. Like, I, I know I'm a Spider-Man, yeah. like, you know, I'm a Spider-Man stan. I love Spidey, but with the further characterization that they do to the symbiote in the Spider-Man books, if they had taken that and done that here and used Spider-Man as an advantage, because Spider-Man spends the first seven issues with everyone being like, no, it's just Spider-Man. He's just a kid. Like he's just a dork. Like he has no place here. And Spidey's running around like, Hey everyone. (laughs) Oh guys, it's Magneto. Like, yeah, we know you're in a ball of metal. And it's like, if they had taken that kid and put him into the black suit and made him a badass, like I feel like that would have been such a great pivotal story moment for Spider-Man. And I feel like they could have used the power of the symbiote 
so much in their final battles. Like, they could have taken advantage of that, like nobody's business, but I feel like they just kind of obviously wanted to sell some toys and wanted to give them a new suit. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I just, it feels like a missed opportunity in a sense. Like, I, I so greatly appreciate what it is for the fact that it gave us the black suit and it gave us those later stories in Spider-Man, but... I mean, I don't know. It, I feel like it just could have been utilized so much greater, you know. And uh, my my last my last thing to 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 say on it is, you know, the symbiote is this incredible piece of Spider-Man mythology, and I I just think that. If, if they had found a way to <laughs> come up with the power set and the skill set of the symbiote by this time, before they did the Spider-Man solo books, I feel like, like Spider-Man could have been a shining star in these final battles because he was so just dorked on in those first couple ones. And... He, I feel like he really, really could have been a, a really cool character, and that could have been a really cool character, or the kid who has seemingly no power compared to everyone else now getting power and someone like Cap teaching him how to use it. Yeah. You know? I don't know. I don't know. I, I great, Like I said, I greatly appreciate this book for introducing this suit. I just wish it was better utilized, and I also wish that the kid who actually created it got some royalties on it, but yeah. that's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> that's just like, my my little political take yeah, on it. Get on your soapbox. Get on your soap. I, I, I think it's very. Um, it's interesting how it is introduced, and it's then it he does. No one really talks about it for like most of the book after it comes in, and then in the very last issue, Spidey's like, "Hey." Did, did this machine that makes you new costumes read your thoughts and then give you a little black orb like it did for me? No. I wonder what that's all about. And it just sets up a plot thread for... Stay tuned next time on The Amazing Spider-Man, issue 74. <laughs> exactly. It sets up another plot thread for a writer later down the line to come in and actually do something with this. And, right. you know, I don't think anyone had any I, I don't think anyone had any plans for it i i think it was just originally supposed to be like hey he's got a new costume right because i mean he cycles through costumes like we cycle through clothes yes. <laughs> spider-man seemingly has a new costume every year and uh -huh. you know i mean he just got out of one um he just got out of that silver and gold one which was interesting to say the least. Um, and then Miles just got a new one for I think it's his tenth anniversary. Oh, yeah. Um, I actually really like the Miles one. Uh, it feels very it's an, uh, in it's character. A, it's a cool costume. But it's such a staple of Spider-Man to be like, I have a new costume because he see me. I mean, like especially in those early books, because also in our middle school library, 
Um, I feel like I name dropped it earlier, so you might have to bleep it. But I, if I if I have to bleep it out, I'll bleep it out. We shouldn't tell people where we went to middle school. Right, it just kind of slipped because this feels more like a conversation for yes. me, and less like, oh, we're on a podcast. I don't know. I just love talking about this stuff. So. Oh, we have, we have we have people listening in on this. Oh crap! Oh, um, here's my social security number. It's... Right, so it's four. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the middle school library, there was I think four volumes of. Of essential Spider-Man, which oh, is yeah. those Lee Ditko and eventually um, Ramita yeah. uh, issues. And I remember something so great about the way they utilized, you know, him getting different suits in those books was he would create different suits for the specific villain that he needed to fight. Oh, yeah. Like he created a, a rubber suit to fight Elektra. Oh, yeah. And... He created, um, I, I remember, this is longer down the line, but he created the, I think it's the first, no, no, yeah, he created the first spider armor when fighting, um, oh, what's his name? I don't remember. Um, <laughs> I just remember the armor. He created the second spider armor when he lost his spider sense. Like, Peter is very much a tinkerer like Tony Stark. He's mm -hmm. always, he's always, you know, whipping up new gadget he's always whipping up a new suit um so it wasn't it's not like at this point him getting a new suit was like unheard of but i just you know i wish it was a bigger deal yeah all right um to cap off our discussion about this i want to talk about a character that hasn't come up i think at all in our conversation but i think my is my favorite character in this book um ben Grimm, the thing <laughs> yeah i, I love ben Grimm. he has a very interesting arc where he gets onto battle world and he loses his rock form and he, he, constantly... he definitely is tortured throughout this book yeah. mentally at least he's you know shifting like... between thing and ben and he's seemingly of... like every issue he's like being forced in and out and i was like i remember there's a specific line he had to read where he was like wow this is the worst like one moment i think i'm back to normal and the next i'm back into the thing and i i like i was i felt really bad i was like yeah. this guy hates being the thing at this point he hasn't really come to accept at least from you know the timeline i can assume based on the year it was released he hasn't really learned to accept himself yet no. So he's being forced in and out of this form, constantly being shown what he could have and what he truly is. And, like, it's so sad. It I is... felt so, so bad for him. Like, I feel like out of every Marvel character, the one I find myself in any interpretation always hurting the most for is Ben Grimm because of his self-confidence. And yeah. I, it's something I really felt with those early Fantastic Four movies. While not perfect, some of my favorite interpretations of the yeah. characters because he was so he was so just melancholy and he was so heartbroken that he was dealt this you know this hand yeah. and seeing him constantly forced in and out of it was just heartbreaking and he also was written very well he has some hilarious funnies uh, i remember i remember in the first issue just the funniest i i audibly laughed 
and I, I don't usually audibly laugh at comics. Usually I'm just like, oh, okay, that's funny, you know? But I audibly laughed when um, Reed, like, he's like, oh, blah, blah, I'm uh, science, fake science, fake science, blah, 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 blah. And then Thing is like, hey, will you just shut up and look astounded like the, astounded, like the rest of us? <laughs> it, is, it is a great line. And he's a great character in this book. Yeah. And I think one of the best things about this story is it ending on him deciding to stay on Battleworld for a while, have She-Hulk join the Fantastic Four, and just live his life as both Ben and the Thing. And I haven't read it yet, but it it, this leads into a like a Thing series that I've heard is actually really good. Yeah, dude. I I've I've heard about it, but I still haven't read it. Yeah, uh, same as you, but. I, I think, like, that's such a testament to the nature of the thing, you know, and and what his character truly is, is it's just a guy who doesn't want to be wh who he is, you know, and it's something I feel like everyone can relate to. I feel like we all have some, some self-doubt, some just moments where we wish man i wish i was just someone else yeah like I, I so wish i was like chris evans do you know how many times a day i say oh man if i was chris evans right now i would i would do something i'd be doing something different yes. <laughs> you know like you know I, I say that in the comedic sense but i feel like a lot of people including me it's very serious thoughts of like i just wish i was somebody else yeah. why do i have to be me and i feel like thing is one of the most relatable marvel characters for that and seeing him at this point and making this choice i feel is it, it's a bittersweet feeling um because you know that he won't be happy because he's away from his family but you also know that it's, it's what he really wants mm -hmm. you know like, he's going to be away from the Fantastic Four. Eventually, he'll go back because he loves them. They're his family, you know. They're the Marvel's first family. But this is this is kind of the life he's always wanted, is getting this this human form back. And yeah. it's just kind of sad, you know. It ended, the, it ended the book on a really bittersweet feeling for me. I was, I, I, I was really emotionally impacted by it. I, I felt, I felt like, ah. Man, I just I I hope he figures this stuff out. You know, that's how I felt. I was like, man, I really hope he figures this stuff out because, you know, I feel like it's the opening, and it's like you said, how kind of like with uh, with the Spider-Man thing, where it's like leaving the door open for another yeah. writer. I felt like they were, re and I, again, I haven't read that thing book either, but I feel like they're really leaving the door open for a story of self-acceptance yeah. with the thing. And that's yeah. something that gets me really just emotionally excited. Yeah. Like, I, I really want a story like that. I really do. It's a beautiful ending. And I think it's one of the best things that this book has going for it. Yeah. All right. So. It's, 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 it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, 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 we, all right. Um, uh, we're going to take like a six minute cry break um yeah we, we are yeah. we are almost an hour and an hour and a half of recording just but uh you're just give gonna us listen. a moment guys <laughs> 
You're just gonna listen to us cry for a little bit. <laughs> it's it's the next hour is just us sobbing. Oh yeah. Oh uncontrollably. Yes. I'm gonna cry about the thing after I hang up this record. Um <laughs> and as we move into the end of this episode, we are going back to our favorite segment that I still don't have a permanent name for, so I'm just gonna call it Cast the Comics. And where we talk about the cast who we'd like to see as these characters in an adaptation of this story. Now, mm -hmm. with this being the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a lot of these characters that we see in this book have already been cast. I think right. a majority of the heroes, some of the villains, and besides the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, most of this grew. So are we, are we going by um, MCU casting? Like I, if, I would say, in this hypothetical, yes, I would say Okay, so. so if they were cast in, like, the Fox movies, we're good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, 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 that's cool, because I have some that have, I was gonna say, like, oh, they were in Fox, but I really want to see them in yeah. the MCU. So, I, I want to, I have only really one casting choice for mm. this, and it comes with the protagonist of this book, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And I am in the public majority here, but it's a re it's the reason it's a reason it's so mainstream. It's because it's a really good choice. I want Giancarlo Esposito as Doctor Doom. Mmm. Yo. That would be so sick. You need That would be so sick. Yeah, you need that presence of like intimidating but charming. And in everything he's done it's that's exactly what it is i mean oh, man that's such a good casting choice like i oh, i i didn't I, even know i didn't even know that that was like a fan favorite casting it is in in the circles that i run in at least it is like the hope for a lot of people like jean carlo coming in as the next big threat oh man like that's that's nuts well, because I, 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 I also fan casted Doom, but okay. I, I, I didn't even think of doing him. Now I feel, oh man, well, now no, I, I want to hear, hear yours now. I wanna... Um, so mine is, and I, I have to, I had to pull up his wiki because I don't, I, I, I don't know exactly how to, <laughs> how to pronounce his name. Oh. Um, it's because it, he's uh. I'm pretty sure he's he's Danish. Okay. Um I think the way you pronounce it is <clears throat> and you know, people in the comments are, you know, people can DM me and yeah. tell me that I'm wrong. A Adam on Twitter. What, what's your what's your Twitter? Nicolaj. Um my 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 current fan cast is Nicolaj Coaster Waldau. Waldau. Oh him! Oh Jamie Lannister. He's yeah, he's Jamie Lannister in in Game of Thrones, and I think by the time that uh, the time you know they entered by the, by the time they introduce Doom in the MCU, I feel like he'll be at the perfect age. Oh, um, yeah, and yeah. I don't know. I feel like he's got that presence. There's something about his face to me that like. When I see him as Jamie Lannister, I'm like, hmm, he's got this presence. And I would really love to see that from Doom, just like you had said. But honestly, you kind of 
blew it out of the park with I, with your pick. Man. I think like, John Carlo is. I I think we're both we're both in the right here. I think you need an actor for Doctor Doom with such presence. Yeah, that... such gravitas in in the way that he walks and looks. Like he needs to feel like like you said Shakespearean yes. big. Yes. Yeah. I think um, had we not ha- had the MCU released years and years and years ago when he was more in his prime, but I think Richard E. Grant would have also been great. Um, Richard E. Grant, who was old Loki in this summer's yeah. smash hit Loki. Um, he would have been great. You, An actor with that sort of presence. Oh, definitely. Definitely him. Yes. Like, he, I don't know what it is, man. Like, there's something about Doom that just forces this feeling of wonder. Yeah. In, in you, and and it's like this this crazy. I don't know. I don't know what it is. To be honest, I can't put my finger on it. But he just feels big. He feels just just mountainous in in his presence. Um. I have I have an, I have another fan pick. Um, okay, I want to hear this. Okay, this feels okay. So this feels like a very mainstreamy pick, but based on this actor's performance and the thing they're big for now, I think that it would be a seamless transition to the Human Torch. So, oh, I want for the Human Torch. I want Joe Keery. Okay, I feel like. Him as Steve in Stranger Things, um, lesser so in the first season and more so in second and third. He has had this kind of redemption arc, but he still has an ego and he still has an attitude. And that's kind of the characterization I want to see from from Johnny Storm because that's kind of who he is. Where he's like, I'm a good guy, but I'm going to talk smack and I'm going to have an attitude and I've got an ego. I love fame. And I feel like that's exactly who Steve Harrington is, <laughs> like truly. Yeah. And I feel like Joe Keery could knock it out of the park. He this just is a dye really, his hair blonde. Yeah, this you is know? a really interesting pick because I have another strange Stranger Things actor on my docket for a Fantastic Four Johnny Storm casting. Ooh. Dacre Montgomery. That's also so good. <laughs> Again, oh these are just gosh. like these are also like some of the biggest like mainstream castings right now, but yeah. I feel like you have cocky asshole who learns to be better, and I think that's right. trope both of those actors can play off really well. Well, and he played it so good in yeah. Power Rangers. Oh my god, I forgot about Power Rangers. He say what you want about that movie, the performance of him as as um Jason was so good. He knew what he was doing. He had this chip on his shoulder yeah. um, throughout the entire film, and I really liked it. Yeah. I really, um, really liked it. And then I have, if, if we're going to cast the Fantastic Four right now, I have one more. Okay. I, I have um, Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, AP Bio. Um, he's my Reed Richards. Let me look him up. I, I, I know... Who you're talking about? I just need to see the face. Yes. Oh, oh yeah, you, yeah. He's great. With if they go in the direction direction I'm hoping for with Reed Richards, you mm-hmm. need a an actor who can play a sociopath. And right, because 
I mean, so I'm I am of the belief that yes, John Krasinski does look like Reed Richards. He looks, but hard. Reed Rich. I mean, I feel like a lot of people who say that think Reed Richards is a hero. Yeah. Whereas Reed Richards is less of a hero and more of a mad scientist. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. yes. Especially in certain adaptations, Reed Richards can be the biggest a-hole on the planet yep. because he is more dedicated to science usually than he is being a hero and i don't know i think that's if i think if, it's kind of interesting if i can shout out my current favorite like my favorite current running comic series for a second a uh, fantastic four life story where in the same vein as spider-man life story um the characters are to. aging real t- in real time as each issue covers a different decade. Um, Reed in that book, yeah, that is a scary individual. He is in constant yeah. pursuit of science and doing what he feels is right to save the world at the mm-hmm. expense of losing his family, losing his losing his entire team as a group of heroes, losing his son, losing Johnny. Sue divorces him. It's, it is like pursuit of knowledge over and everything else to yeah. the worst consequences. Certainly, um, man, Reed Richards is a scary individual. Like truly, like you nailed it on the head by saying that he is. He he's like a I I see him as a as a ticking time bomb. Yeah, uh, he's. He's, he's kind of uh, just, he, I, whenever I see him, I'm like, oh, something's going to happen. Yeah. Something is going to happen because he's, I don't know, man. He's, but I have one more. Yes. <laughs> I have another Johnny Storm. Oh, you have another Johnny Storm. <laughs> I love Johnny Storm. Yeah, and so he... I'm very invested in who plays him yes. uh, <laughs> in the MCU. And, you know, Initially, this wouldn't be my first pick, but thinking closer and more into it, I feel like that this actor has shown that they can and have played basically Johnny Storm already. Yeah, it's right? No, (laughs) it's not, but that would also be a really good one. Bring him back! I, I would say... Um, I would say Andrew Garfield. Oh, because I feel like for the first half of the Amazing Spider-Man one, he's very Johnny Storm. You know, wow. he's picking on he's picking on that car thief. He's laughing at him. And then recently, with Mainstream, have you seen Mainstream? I have not seen Mainstream, but he plays. Okay, <laughs> I see. I see Johnny Storm as kind of like. Almost not as extreme, but almost the Jake Paul of the MCU. Yeah, where he's okay, very influencer based, and that's exactly who um, Andrew plays in mainstream. He's okay. this guy who is obsessed with becoming more popular, more famous, and he lives and breathes off of it. And I, I, when I saw that, I was like, man, this guy could be Johnny Storm so well. Take the cockiness and heroicness from the Tasm movies uh, imbued with the ego and power craze from 
mainstream, and I feel like you got a really good Johnny there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I I really do love Andrew, though. I'm very biased towards Andrew. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to pose a challenge, though, and it it uh, I, I don't know. It's it's something I was thinking about when reading the book. Um, I wanna I wanna pose the question. This book featured a very comic accurate Wolverine. Yeah. If you were to cast this Wolverine, this Wolverine in the MCU, who would you cast, and why is it not Hugh Jackman? Uh, okay. Because I feel like Hugh Jackman isn't this Wolverine. Hugh Jackman. I feel like this is, is very this different. Wolverine. I think, so I know a lot of people say Carl Urban. Carl Urban is, like, a lot of people's first choice to replace Hugh Jackman. Mm -hmm. I don't think we found our Wolverine yet. In terms of, like, current celebrities out there, I don't think we found our next Wolverine. Right. I, I... I'm still looking for someone who I feel can car- carry that torch on from Hugh Jackman. It's a tough casting for sure. And that's why I, that's why I said it poses a challenge. Yeah, it um, is a... The only, the only possible casting that I could think of for this specific Wolverine. This definitely wouldn't be my pick for what I think the MCU is going to do with Wolverine. But for this specific Wolverine, all I can think of is... Uh, Keanu Reeves. This is a this is a very grizzled Wolverine. Yeah, this he's is... grizzled. He's less of a uh, uh, an anger bomb. He has his moments where he's like ah, but a lot of the time he's spent sulking and this being a, like, huh, this I don't respect Captain Wolverine. America. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like Keanu could really pull it off, you know, because he's very, you know grizzled and and melancholy yeah i think like i think now keanu could do this specific wolverine yeah i feel like keanu right now (laughs) keanu coming off of um john wick 4 i believe and matrix 4 yeah oh next year's gonna next year's gonna be wait when does matrix 4 come out this december right yeah oh christmas of keanu Christmas of Keanu. And on that note, thank you, Eddie, for joining us on this episode of Is that the podcast reading. episode? Is going to be called Christmas with Keanu? <laughs> uh, stay tuned for our, ne- our, our new podcast, uh, Christmas with Keanu. <laughs> it's um, only one episode, and we're going to do it every year. And so- yes, it is every year. We talk, cover a different Keanu movie. We hang out on Christmas Day, and we, co- we watch a Keanu movie. Um, you heard it here first. Thank you for joining us, Eddie. Oh, Um, yeah, man. Stay tuned for another episode where we might dive deeper into the sociopath that is Reed Richards. Oh, let's do it. And remember, Galactus is good at two things. Eating planets and T-posing to assert dominance.
Recommended reading with Jackson Heyman's theme music was written by Charlotte Rosenthal. Recommended reading with Jackson Heyman is produced by Mythonomica Productions. Thank you for listening.